0: welcome to the preaching ministry of Tri-City Baptist Church in Chandler, Arizona. Our desire is that God would be magnified through the preaching of His Word, and that Christians would be challenged, strengthened, and edified in their personal walk with Christ. It is our privilege this evening to have Dr. Tim Schmig with us. Dr. Schmig is the executive director for the Michigan Association of Christian Schools. He's very involved in in the Christian school movement and aware of what is taking place both on the educational side but also on the governmental side. And he is uh, active both in Michigan with their political situation and trying to help protect Christian schools from some of the assaults that are taking place there, but also in Washington, D.C., And I've appreciated so much uh, his commitment to Christian education, his awareness of these issues. uh, When we talk or at times he'll send texts and let me know of things things that are going on both there and then on a national level. And, And really that we have to be vigilant in seeking to guard our freedoms and the heritage that we have in this nation. And so we're glad to have Tim, his wife, Sue, with us this evening. Uh, we get together usually every year in Washington, D.C. for the American Association of Christian Schools Convention, as he is there, and I'm often there. And I, I learned many years ago, he would say, come here, and he would show me things in Washington of our, of our Christian heritage that you had to know where to look. And as I mentioned this morning, if you take the regular tours they give you, they're not going to point these things out. Uh, but there are a number of places where we see our heritage there. And so I've appreciated that. I've had many of those tours, and some of them sp- just spur the moment. He also knows the best restaurants in Washington, D.C. as well. So that's the other reason I like to hang around him. Uh, but appreciate so much his friendship, uh, his commitment to the truth, and really helping to educate us of the heritage that we have in this nation, that, that we would guard it and pass it on to others, that we would stand for the Lord. So Brother Tim, would you come at this time? Yes, sir. thank you. Amen,
1: what a, what a blessing to be with you this evening. If I may, just a, in a moment, just call your attention to the, the books that we have out there, the table that's there. How many of you have noticed that around the country they're taking down monuments from our national history? Have you ever thought about why are they taking down those monuments? Because the people depicted in those monuments were not perfect. Can I tell you something? You're looking at somebody who's not perfect. I've had a small fortune slip through my fingers in my lifetime. Do you know how many baseball cards I put in my bicycle spokes when I was a kid? <laughs> Do you know what those things would be worth today if we had them? Tom Brady card just sold for $4 million. A preacher could live on that if he's careful. So one of the ministries that I have is called Stories and Stones, which is just talking about the men, the moments, the manuscripts, and the monuments of our national history. And it's a guide that when you go to Washington, D.C., where to look uh, for some of the things that specifically point to our Judeo-Christian heritage. And this book is out there. It's called Stories and Stones. And then about eight years ago, I was minding my own business, and I got an email from somebody who said that he was a member of the Center for Inquiry, the largest atheistic organization in the state of Michigan. And he said, I've been watching your videos online. Now, I haven't posted any videos, but if I speak at a church and they live stream it, that'll be posted. And he said, you seem to say that America has a godly heritage, or it was founded on Judeo-Christian principles. He said, would you be interested in coming over to the Center for Inquiry on the western side of the state and debating me? And the the topic of the debate was the uh, Treaty of Tripoli, Article 11, which says America was not in any sense founded on the Christian religion. Now, the Treaty of Tripoli was at a time when the Barbary pirates were taking our sailors, uh, enslaving them, abusing them. And we were trying to negotiate to get their release. And if you know anything about hostage negotiations, it's perfectly acceptable to say whatever you need to say to get the hostages released because they've already broken the law in in enslaving this person. And in the negotiations for the Treaty of Tripoli, the day of Algiers, their potentate, wrote in the margin of the treaty, he said, is America a Christian nation? Because if we claim to be a Christian nation, then it's perfectly acceptable to enslave the infidels as they have been doing, like they were doing with the British sailors. And so in the negotiation of it, in order to let them think uh, whatever they wanted to think about us, we said America is not in any sense a Christian nation. And it was ratified by the Senate years later, when they went to re-ratify the treaty, they removed that statement from the treaty, acknowledging that we are founded on the Judeo-Christian principles. And if you study anything about treaty negotiations, to remove or to add anything to a previous treaty is rather unusual. Well, while I was preparing for that debate, I started looking at some of the things from our national history, specifically the stamps, the, the seals that colonies would have and that states would have that would point to a Judeo-Christian Heritage, and I put together, this was a fun book to get put together. It's called Our Stamp of Approval, and it just shows how many times as a nation we have acknowledged in our public stamps and seals that we are a Christian nation. As a matter of fact, when Apollo 8 circled the moon, the U.S. Postal Service came up with a stamp that said, in the beginning God. One person said, if you can believe the first four words of the Bible, everything else is easy. And then one last thing I want to call your attention to. About uh, 12 years ago, the Lord placed myself and my wife on an amazing journey. She was diagnosed with stage 3 cancer and it was in the lymph nodes. And after 26 weeks of chemotherapy, fasting, and prayer, we went after her surgery to see the surgeon. And he looked at my wife and he said, Your body responded well to the chemotherapy. And we winked at his nurse, who was a believer, because you and I know it's not our body responding well to chemotherapy. We serve the great physician, the king of kings and the Lord of lords. He said, I sent your tissue off to the pathologist, and he called right away and said, what am I supposed to be looking for? There's no cancer here. And the whole time that my wife was on her journey, she was journaling, and I asked her afterwards, "You would you please put your journal into book form so it would be an encouragement to others? And the Lord has just blessed this book in so many ways. We have an oncologist who buys these in bulk to give them to her patients. She said, when I give a, a patient a diagnosis of cancer, I'm handing them a death sentence. I want to give them encouragement. So if you're looking for some encouragement or you might know somebody who's on that journey, please stop by and, and see my wife at, at the table at the end of the service. If you have your Bibles tonight, will you please turn with me to the book of Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. And beginning to read in verse 5, the Apostle Paul, as a sacred historian, records these words for us. Philippians chapter 2 and verse 5, he says, "'Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, "'who, being in the form of God, "'thought it not robbery to be equal with God, "'but made himself of no reputation "'and took upon him the form of a servant "'and was made in the likeness of men. "'And being found in fashion as a man,' he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore, God also hath highly exalted him and given him him a name which is above every name. Then verse 10, at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Let's turn to the Lord for the few brief moments that we have together this evening. Father, we come to you and, Lord, we worship you. We worship you because you are holy, holy, holy. And we are at best, men, sinners saved by grace. And Lord, I would just ask that you would help us in everything that we say and do tonight, that you might get all of the honor and all the glory. And we would thank you for this now in Jesus' name. Amen. I've been asked in the past, working with the Michigan Association of Christian Schools, how did you get started in Christian education? Well, when I was 14 years old, I was in a ton of trouble. I was one step ahead of the law. The only difference between myself and my friends is they were getting caught for the things that we were doing. I had not gotten caught yet. And a fellow that I played ball with said, would you like to go up to our church camp? And the only thing I could think of is if I go up to that church camp, the cops can't find me there. Pretty good reason to go up to camp. So I went up to camp and I was a Roman Catholic and I, I had never been around independent, Bible believing, fundamental Baptist for any length of time in my life. And so I got up got on the bus, went up to camp, did all the usual camp activities that afternoon, played ball, beach activities, all the stuff you do at camp, canoeing, swimming. That evening there was a campfire service, and at the campfire service the counselor gave a message on the reality of hell. As a Roman Catholic, I had heard about hell. I knew that bad people went there. I never wanted to go there, and I remember going to, to bed that evening and just thinking, boy, I don't want to go to hell. Got up the next morning, sat with the guys that were in my cabin, and the, the people at camp spoke differently than I had ever heard anybody speak before. They would say things like, I was having my devotions today. I just looked at them and thought, you were having your devotions Somebody else would say, I was praying, and it was as if the Lord said, I just looked at them and thought, you were praying and God spoke to you. I'd never heard anything like this in my life. Then go through all Tuesday, same activities, Tuesday night, campfire service, the reality of hell. On Wednesday, the activities were about the same, except on Wednesday night, we went, got on a bus and drove from the camp to an independent, fundamental Baptist church for the Wednesday evening service. And all the way into this church service and all the way back to camp, I kept asking my camp counselor, how can I know that I'm saved? How can, how can I know that salvation is for me? I was Roman Catholic. I knew the stations of the cross. I knew uh, the Apostles' Creed. I knew the Lord's Prayer. I knew all the stuff a Roman Catholic should know, but I don't believe I ever heard that Jesus Christ died for me. Every Sunday you saw the crucifix and you, you saw a, an act of tremendous compassion But I never knew that it was for me. And that's Wednesday night, July 10th, 1974. I bowed my head, I humbled myself, and I asked the Lord Jesus Christ to save me. The next year, I went back to our public school as a sophomore in high school. And when you're a brand-new Christian, you have stops and starts, peaks and valleys, good days, not really good days. You try to live a consistent life in front of your friends. And after a year's time, with some success, a few setbacks, I went to my dad, who was Roman Catholic, and I said, Dad, I would like to go to a Christian school this fall. And he said, that is great. And then he listed the Catholic schools in the St. Paul Minneapolis area he wanted me to go to. I said, Dad, you don't understand. I would like to go to Fourth Baptist Christian Day School in Minneapolis. And he looked at me and he said, oh, if that's what you want, I can't pay for that. You'll be on your own. And all I heard my dad say was, yes, you can go to a Christian school. I went out that summer, got a job, that fall enrolled myself in fourth. And every single month when the bill came, it came with my name on it. I wanted to be in a Christian school. I wanted to be in the type of school that you have here where it's okay to bring your Bible to class, it's okay to have prayer requests, it's okay to try as best as you can to have spiritual inclinations and spiritual discussions. The next year, Sue and I went to Rosemont Baptist Schools and we graduated from there. And then we went down to Bob Jones University together and I must say, you're looking at somebody who's pretty gifted, it took me seven years to get a four-year degree from Bob Jones. (laughs) I finally graduated, magna kumbaya. (laughs) It was so bad. We had the dean of the College of Arts and Sciences was in Adolf Hitler's army when he was a kid. He was conscripted. And I had him for an orientation class and he wouldn't have known me in that class. But then I had him for a German class. If anybody's gonna speak German, it would have been him. Then I had him for a philosophy class. And after seven years of seeing me take the scenic route through Bob Jones University, they said, now on graduation day, walk up and see your dean. He'll hand you a case for your diploma. Make your way off the platform when you're all done. Go over to the records office. If your bill's paid, you can get your diploma. I walked up on the platform to get this case and he looked at me and he just said, Though, well, I never thought I would see the day, and I thought, all right, <laughs> way to encourage the troops on the way out of here." Then <laughs> we taught in a Christian school in Greenwood, and the Lord moved us up to South Bend, Indiana, and we taught there for three years. And then the Lord moved us up to Michigan. And from that day, that fall day, going to Fourth Baptist Christian Day School, until today, every single day of my life has been involved in Christian education, either as a student, as a college student, as a teacher. Having my kids in Christian education, working with the Michigan Association of Christian Schools, and now being blessed in order to help our grandkids uh, have an opportunity to go to a Christian school. My life has been in Christian education. And I look at this passage in Philippians chapter 2 where Paul says, Let this mind be in you. He's telling us it's an imperative. I want you to do something, he's saying. It's not a suggestion. It's something that we're supposed to do. He says, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Now, if we're in a Bible Institute class, if we're in a Sunday school class, the Sunday school teacher will say that this passage in Philippians is called the great kenosis. The Lord Jesus Christ voluntarily setting aside some of his divine attributes so that he can walk among men and not have them fall back as Isaiah did when Isaiah saw the Lord high and lifted up. And the seraphim were shouting, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. He voluntarily sets aside some of his attributes so that he can minister to us, so that he can fulfill the ministry that God the Father has given him. And when he says, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, he's giving us an attribute. Oftentimes I've been asked, by folks. Usually on the outside looking in, they'll say, why would any parent put their child in a Christian school when the government schools are free? Why would somebody do that? And I think the best answer is simply this. Parents put their children in a Christian school to give them access to two or three things they can't get in the government schools. Number one is Bible reading and prayer. And then also character, developing character in young people. And one of the aspects of character that we try to develop, that we try to encourage them to have, is a spirit of humility. It's one of the foundational character traits that we all must have. And when we think about this passage, this passage, the great kenosis, is part of the Christmas story, the songs that we sing at Christmas, Down from His Glory. Away in a manger. All of these talk about the creator coming down to live among his creation. And I've often thought there's a couple of things I would never want to be. I don't think I'd want to be a Christmas song because we only sing that one month out of the year. When we Tremendous doctrine there. We could sing it any month out of the year. And the whole idea here is that we sing about God humbling himself and coming down to earth for us, this is the great kenosis. This is him emptying himself, voluntarily setting aside some of his divine attributes so that he might minister among us. John chapter 1 and verse 1 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. God Almighty became man. Then in the psalmist, in Psalm 8, the psalmist asks an amazing question He says, What is man? that thou art mindful of him. The son of man that thou visitest him. Why would you leave the realms of glory to come and to visit us? That's humility. Now, sometimes when we're in a classroom setting and we're trying to define something, it's good to think of the antithesis of a word in order for us to, to clarify, to codify what that word or what that concept is. When you're thinking of the opposite, the antithesis of humility. What words come to mind that you think of? Help me out, it gets awfully lonely up here. Pride, pride. and the, the attitude of, I am all of that, I'm, I am full of myself, pride. Anything else? Somebody. What was it? Haughtiness, looking down your nose at other people, thinking yourself better than other people, an arrogance that we can't learn from other people, that we know everything. And the opposite of that is just, the opposite of humility is being so wrapped up in yourself that you have a very difficult time learning or understanding or communicating with other people. Now, one of the ideas that is the opposite of humility is thinking of ourselves as irreplaceable. Remember, I was taking a class up at Northland, and in Michigan, if you're going to Northland, typically you'll drive up and over the bridge. You'll take US2 along the Upper Peninsula. And as I was driving to class, sometimes I would have somebody ride with me to offset some of the gas costs. And I was riding with a fellow one time, and he was just sharing with me some of the problems that, were ha- that he was having in his office. He said there's no communication. When there is communication, it's bad communication. It's demeaning. It's cutting. Sometimes it's sarcastic. And he was just giving some examples of what was going on. And after a while, I turned to him and I said, well, you know, it's a big world out there. You don't have to work there. As a matter of fact, you could polish your resume and go to work someplace else. And he said as we were driving down US two, he said, Well, I don't really know how to say this, but in my office, I'm irreplaceable. And I just let that sink into the car. Now it's the middle of January. We're driving on US two. Every once in a while you would hit black ice and you could feel the tires just spin out under you. And I said, So you're telling me as we go down this highway and truckers are passing us in both directions, I said, you're telling me if I lose control of the car or if one of those trucks lose control and slams into us and both you and I are ushered out into eternity, you're telling me that tomorrow everybody gathers around the water cooler in your office and the conversation's going to be something like, well, it was a good run while we lasted. Time to polish the resume. We're done here. Close up shop. It's over. And he said, well... No. Of course not, no. None of us are irreplaceable. The Frenchman Charles de Gaulle said, the cemetery is full of irreplaceable people. All of us have a termination date. All of us have an expiration date. The Bible says, as it is appointed unto men once to die. All of us have that final date in our life. None of us are irreplaceable. And sometimes, no matter who you are, we all struggle with humility. The great preacher Harry Ironside had a moment of transparency, and he went to see one of his pastor friends, and he said, can you please help me out? I'm struggling with humility. He said, let me tell you what will happen. He said, I will go to a conference, and they will introduce me, and the introduction that they give to me is embarrassing The things that they say about me. He said, I'll walk into a pastor's office and I'll look at his bookshelf and I'll see books that I've written on his bookshelf. He said, I'll drive down the road, turn on the radio, and out of the radio I'll hear, and our radio speaker today is Harry Ironside, and I'll hear my voice coming out of the radio. He said, I'm struggling with humility. And his pastor friend said, this is what I want you to do. He said, I want you to get one of those sandwich boards that the advertisers in downtown Chicago use. And he said, on the front of the sandwich board, I want you to to paint on there for all of sin and come short of the glory of God. On the back of the sandwich board, I want you to put, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And he said, then what I want you to do is I want you to take your Bible, wearing that sandwich board, I want you to walk up and down the streets of Chicago for three hours... And do nothing but repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And Harry Ironside saw no reason to not do it, so he did it. For three hours, up and down the streets of Chicago, the street preacher, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, wearing the sandwich board with the Bible verses on it. After three hours, he was through. He went back to his office, leaned those sandwich boards up against the wall, and thought to himself, No one could have done that better than I just did. We all struggle with humility. And it can be to our detriment because the Lord says in Isaiah, he says, For thus saith the high and lofty one that inhabiteth eternity, his name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place with him. Who gets to dwell in heaven? With him that is of a contrite, and humble spirit to revive the spirit of the humble, to revive the heart of the contrite ones. God says you want entrance into my heaven? The access key is a spirit of humility. That's who can dwell with me. A recent bestseller, a New York Times bestseller, on the, on the New York Times bestseller list for over six weeks, the first line of the book said, it's not all about you. Have you ever met somebody that it was all about them? You start talking to them, and pretty soon the conversation gets turned to the point of their job, their vacation, their kids, their grandkids, their hobbies, their whatever, and when they're finally exhausted of talking about themselves, they'll come up for air and they'll say, well, enough about me. What do you think about me? They can't turn the subject. They can't get away. You know, studying American history, I'm fascinated with people in our country who have ascended to the heights of power. The accidental president, LBJ, he was a Texan, big, gregarious, and he realized that his television persona did not work. He was too much for a television screen. And so he would tell his speechwriters, what I want you to do is when you write this speech, put something in there that makes me sound humble. Can we manufacture humility? Can we manufacture insincerity? And yet, that's almost part and parcel of the attitude of those who can be in power and can be in Washington, D.C. What I would would like to do now is just take a look at a couple of things that when you go to Washington, D.C., are noticeable that almost seem like, how does this end up in Washington, D.C.? How does a place that is totally consumed with who they are, their position... I spoke at a church in the Washington, D.C. area on this subject, and afterwards, a man came up to me and he said, how do you think it went? I said, I thought it went fine. I did everything the Lord was wanting to do. He said, what do you think the reception was? And I said, I hadn't really noticed. And he said, well... He said, I don't think it went over too well. He said, I just moved here a couple of months ago, and he said, everybody in the Washington, D.C. area will tell you who they are. They're the third assistant to the second vice president someplace, and they have an important title, and really being humble is not something that lands very well in Washington, D.C., except when you take a look at some of the monuments that we have. If you go to the, to the Capitol building, and your congressman takes you into the Congressional Prayer Room. You will see the stained glass window in the Congressional Prayer Room. It depicts General Washington, probably at Valley Forge, sometime during the Revolutionary War, commander of the Continental Army in uniform. And in the stained glass, it says, this nation under God. And then if you can notice in the red, ringing General Washington, you'll see these words, preserve me, O God, For in thee do I put my trust. Psalm 16, 1. If you go just two blocks from the White House, there's New York Avenue Presbyterian Church. And at New York Avenue Presbyterian Church, this is the church that President and Mrs. Lincoln attended when they were in Washington, D.C. He would always sit in the second pew right there, Today, you can go to New York Avenue Presbyterian Church. That pew is unchanged from the time that President Lincoln was there. They've renovated the church a number of times. The pew is still the same pew that was there. The stained glass window over the second pew on this wall right here shows what any person coming to church would have seen the president. Head bowed in prayer, in an attitude of prayer, a worshiper, an attitude of humility. Remembered, memorialized in stained glass. Contrast that when you go to the Louvre in Paris. You can see this painting. It's a massive painting, and it shows Napoleon. And France was a, is, was a Roman Catholic country. And every single coronation of France, when it, whether it was at Reims or wherever it was, the archbishop, the cardinal, whoever was presiding would take the crown, and as an authority, the church was handing the authority to the government in order for them to govern under the auspices and overarching rule of the church. Well, when it came time to crown Napoleon, he took the crown from the archbishop, and he said, nobody crowns Napoleon. He put the crown on himself and then on his wife, Josephine, as if to say, I'm higher. I'm the highest authority. Nobody is higher than I am. If we go into the Library of Congress, go into the main reading room. It's probably one of the most beautiful rooms in all of Washington, D.C. The whole Library of Congress is just an amazing piece of architecture. And when you're in the main reading room, it's a circular room with pillars depicting industry, technology, art, architecture, uh, education, learning. And there's one statue that is called the Statue of Religion. And over the Statue of Religion, you will see this Bible verse in the Library of Congress. And it says, He hath showed the old man what is good, what doth the Lord require of thee, but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with thy God when our founding fathers would correspond to each other at the time of the Declaration of Independence and at the time especially of the writing of the U.S. Constitution. In their correspondence, writing back and forth, whether it was Benjamin Rush to George Washington or Thomas Jefferson, whether it was John Adams talking to John Witherspoon, writing to John Witherspoon, this is the number one verse that they would reference to each other when forming a government. They would say, but we must never forget that our ministry is to do justly. Jefferson and both Franklin would say, if you want good laws, um, pattern them after the Ten Commandments. But to do justly, to do what is right, and then not only in doing what's right for ourselves, but also to love mercy, because we will come in contact with people who have difficulty doing what's right, and we show mercy to them. And we must never forget that in our doing justly, we must not get prideful. In our showing mercy, we must not be too lenient. But we must always remember that one day and every day, we must walk humbly with our God. So how do we cultivate humility? How do we walk humbly with our God? Well, we must realize that, first of all, humility is an inside job. It starts with our heart. We bow our heart to the Lord. And I think one of the things unselfishness is an outward example of showing humility, giving to others, being kind and respectful of others. But why should we as believers cultivate humility? I think we think of the book of Proverbs where it says, these six things that the Lord hate, yea, seven are an abomination unto him. What's the first thing that he lists? A proud look. God resists that. God doesn't want that in our life. God shows us in his word what happens to those who do not cultivate humility in their lives. I want us to turn over, turn back to the book of Acts chapter 12 with me. Acts chapter 12. And verse 21 The Bible tells us that upon a set day Herod, a government official, somebody who has been placed in authority over others, somebody who has all of the authority that the Roman government can bestow upon somebody in that position, upon a set day Herod, arrayed in royal apparel, having on the accoutrements of somebody who has the official position of office, and sat upon his throne, the place of authority, and made a narration unto them. And the people gave a shout, saying, It is the voice of a God and not a man. And you can just hear Herod saying, Can you say that again louder in my good ear? It is the voice of a God, not man. And immediately the angel of the Lord smote him, because he gave not God the glory. And he was eaten up with worms. In the book of Isaiah, the Lord says, I am God. My glory I will not give to another, Isaiah chapter 42 and verse 18. He smote him because he gave not God the glory. One of the great blessings of working with Max is we have fine arts festivals and competitions for our students. And a couple of years ago, we started elementary fine arts, the little kids that are learning to play their violins, that they're taking their first photographs, they're doing their artwork, they're memorizing their poems and they just get so excited. It's their first time, the very first time we ever had elementary fine arts. The little kids got off one of the buses, they ran into the gym, and the first thing, they just squealed, we're having lunch in the gym, which is pretty big stuff when you're in elementary school, you're not sitting at your desk. And then you've got senior high, and these are the kids who they've been at their instrument, they've been practicing their speeches for years. They're pretty accomplished. It's a competition. They're trying to get first in state. They're trying to do the best that they can. They've been to all of these different things. They, they're pretty proficient in what they do. But I think my favorite fine arts competition is watching the junior hires. They're not quite as naive and unpolished as the elementary kids. They don't quite have the con- the confidence that the high school kids have. And it's interesting watching them because I've heard them say things like, Did you hear my? Did you hear my Bible lesson? He said, "I thought I nailed it. I really did quite well. I thought it was the best." Somebody even said, "Amen." That was your grandmother. (laughs) Or they'll talk about how good they are at at their piano piece or their trumpet or whatever, and we encourage them as they are giving their performances. When somebody compliments you, when somebody says, you did well at that, the proper response is, praise the Lord. Give him all of the glory. Let glory reflect from me back to him. Because if you or I have any talent whatsoever, that talent came from the Lord, and if we've been able to refine it at all, a teacher, an instructor, someone helped us polish that talent. And humility is recognizing that God and others are responsible for the accomplishments in my life. We give God the glory. We give the credit to the instructors that we have. I have a friend who's a Lansing. He's a state trooper, but his district that he's in is in Lansing, the place of our state capital. And he was telling me one time, he said, I will pull over cars for somebody that they're speeding or there's a traffic violation or something. And he said, it'll be one of our elected officials. And he said, if they're members of one political party, he said, I'll come up to their window and they'll hold up their driver's license like this and they'll look away, they won't make eye contact. And one of the things they'll say is, this isn't going to be in the paper, is it? There's a bit of shame attached to being pulled over by the state police. He said, I'll pull over members of another party, and when I get up to the window, they're just glaring at me, and they'll say, Do you know who I am? And he said, I want to say to them, Yes, state representative, yes, state senator, I know who you are. You help write laws for the state of Michigan. You think it would be asking too much if you obeyed the laws of the state of Michigan? And for you and me, it's not who I am, it's whose I am. We belong to the Lord. He's given us everything that we have today. Ephesians says, with all lowliness and meekness and long suffering, forbearing one another in love, being kind and considerate, not thinking of ourselves more highly than we ought to think. If we were to take a class in hymnology, And we could get copies of hymn books from the early 1900s. And we started to do some hymn histories of those hymns and we would try to study the ones who wrote those hymns, specifically in the early part of the 20th century. There would be a number of hymns in there that we know nothing about the person who wrote the hymn. Know nothing about their biography, place of birth, time that they lived. Until we take that hymn book and we set it side by side with the diary and journals, of Fanny Crosby. And we see that Fanny Crosby wrote the words to this. But somebody else's name is on there. While she was still alive, this happened a number of times, and somebody asked her about that. Why did you write that hymn and not put your name to it? Why are you using a pseudonym on that hymn? And she said, because when I, want, I want people, when they sing this song, not to think about Fanny Crosby, not to think about my life, but to think about the words of the song and the Jesus that I'm singing about. That's humility. It's the attitude of John the Baptist who in in John chapter 3 and verse 30 says, he must increase, I must decrease. So what made John so great? It wasn't John. It wasn't any natural talent that he had. It was the Lord who said that those born of women, there is not greater than John the Baptist. So what is humility for us? I think humility for us is recognizing that God has given us a precious gift of life. I didn't do anything to deserve this. I didn't do anything to place myself in this position. Jesus has done it all. All to him I owe. And then after that, living by the Bible, the whole Bible, nothing but the Bible, And asking God every single day to help me to be the kind of person that I need to be so that he can do through me what he wants to do with my life. Whenever I take a group, a tour group to Washington, D.C., one of the places that we always go to without hesitation and without exception is Arlington National Cemetery. As you leave the visitor center and you're going to walk up the hill and you can go to the left to the tomb of the soldier known to God or you can go to the right and you can go to John F. Kennedy's grave, you'll see this sign. And the sign says, Welcome to Arlington National Cemetery, our nation's most sacred shrine. Then at the bottom it says, Please remember these are hallowed grounds. Sacred shrine, hallowed grounds. Those are words you rarely hear from any government official. Yet when you go to Arlington, it transcends everything. For me, it's just the visual. As you walk through Arlington, every single one of those stones is a monument or a testament to a son, a father, a daughter, a brother, some of them who gave the ultimate sacrifice so that you and I can live with the freedoms that we enjoy. In every direction where you look, simple white markers, bearing crosses, or stars of David. (laughs) General Patton said, it's foolish and wrong to mourn the men who died. Rather, we should thank God that such men lived. What kind of men are in Arlington? There's one soldier that's there. His name is Mike Mansfield. Mike Mansfield was born in 1903 in Brooklyn, New York. When he was 14 years old, he joined, he didn't fudge his age, and he joined the U.S. Navy. He served on the USS Minneapolis until one day, one of the sailors looked at him and said, boy, how old are you? He said, 15? They said, you can't be 15 years old in the U.S. Navy. And he gets drummed out of the Navy. He waits until he's 18 and he joins, joins the U.S. Marine Corps. And after two years in the Corps, he joins the Army. After he's out of the Army, his family moves to Montana. And while they're in Montana, he works in his father's clothing store, a haberdashery. And in 1942, he runs for the lone representative seat from the state of Montana, and he wins. And he serves in that seat from 1943 until he runs for the, one of the two Senate seats in 1954, and he wins. He becomes a senator in 1955. He's sworn into office. He serves in the Senate from 1955 until 1976. And during that time, the Democrats were in charge, and he became the Senate majority leader. After he gets out of office, he is appointed the U.S. ambassador to Japan, and he's the longest serving U.S. ambassador to Japan. He's brought home and he's given the Presidential Medal of Freedom, the highest award that any U.S. citizen can get. So I want you to think about his resume, U.S. Navy, U.S. Marine Corps, U.S. Army, U.S. Representative, United States Senator, Senate Majority Leader, longest serving Senate Majority Leader in the history of the United States, Ambassador to Japan, Medal of Freedom winner. If this man had lived in any other country, they probably would have named a city block or given a monument to him. But as you walk up that hill and you can turn to the left and go to the tomb of the soldier known to God or go to the right, there's a little knoll there and Mike Mansfield's headstone will be there. What's the one thing Mike Mansfield wanted to be known for? He wore the uniform of the United States Marine Corps. When I speak in chapels, I mention to students that one of the things Paul says in Romans chapter 1, he says, Paul, a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ, I am a bond slave of the Lord Jesus Christ. All of us have ambitions in life. All of us have goals in life. And one of the highest goals that we can aspire to for ourselves is to say that I am a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm captive to him and to his will. You know, in the business world, we can have different successes. We can be, you know, the salesman of the year, rookie of the year, um, president's uh, roundtable, president's club winner. In sports, you can have the MVP, rookie of the year. You can have all of these things. In, in the publishing world, there is something that's called the Pulitzer Prize, And you can win the Pulitzer Prize for newspaper articles, Pulitzer Prizes for magazine articles, short stories, fiction stories, all of these things. And there's a Pulitzer Prize for photography. And this is a photograph that was taken by a man by the name of Kevin Carter. In 1993, there was a famine in Sudan. And he left his place, I believe he was in South Africa, and he went to Sudan just to photograph the famine that was going on. And as Kevin Carter was in his Jeep, he was heading towards one of the feeding stations and he saw this little girl and he stopped his Jeep and he started taking photographs of her. And he was going to entitle the photograph Waiting for a Meal. He snapped the pictures for a while. The next day, he sent these photographs off to the New York Times. And in 1993, this photograph was published on page one of the New York Times above the fold And it was entitled, Waiting for a Meal. The next day, the New York Times was flooded with photographs, or with phone calls and faxes. People wondering, what happened to the little girl? Did Kevin Carter pick up the little girl? Did he take her to the feeding station? Did he go and get food and bring it back to the little girl? And all the New York Times could say meekly was, We believe she was taken care of. We have no further information. The St. Petersburg Times wasn't so kind. They had published the next day. They said the man adjusting his lens to take just the right frame of her suffering might just as well have been another vulture on the scene. A year goes by, and in 1994, Kevin Carter is invited to Columbia University to receive the Pulitzer Prize for the Outstanding Photograph of 1993, the highest award he could get in his chosen profession. The next month in July, 1994, he goes down to the river that he played at when he was a little child. He started his truck and ran a tube from the gas pipe into the passenger window. He left a suicide note, and this is what it said in part. It said, I am really, really sorry. The pain of life overrides the joy to the point that joy does not exist. Depressed. Without phone, without money for rent, money for debts, money, exclamation point, I am haunted by the vivid memories of killings and corpses, anger and pain of suffering and wounded children. Kevin Carter left this little girl to continue doing what he was doing, but she never left him, even to the point of death. She was on his mind. How the story could have been different if in humility he had done something different than just drive away. And as the same is for us, you know, you and I are given the bread of life. We're given the truth. And God wants us in humility to live our life in such a way that we can be a good testimony for him, that we can offer the bread of life to others so that when it comes time for us to think about that time, We can say, look forward to the time when the Lord says to us, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Thou hast done justly. You've shown mercy to others and you've walked humbly with your God. Would you say with me that there's room in all of our hearts for more humility? Tonight, may we cultivate humility in our lives. Let's pray together
0: today. Father.